passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're somebody who's new, uh, I'm actually not the usual preacher. I'm up in Spirit Lake most of the time on the Spirit Lake campus. My name is Kurt, and it's a privilege to be here. Jordan and I are sort of switching back and forth in the summer, and I like that because otherwise I don't get a chance to spend time with you. So this is, a, this is sort of a fun day for me to be with you guys and be able to, to see you. Some of you are old faces I've known for years, like Steve, and others of you are... are no, oh, man. Okay. Uh, okay, we're off to a bad start. I didn't, wasn't like, that was not a bad thing. It's just like I've known Steve for years. Okay, how about that? Just rephrase. Others of you are new, I haven't met, and I'm just excited to be here with you. We're in a series called Broken Vessels, and in this series, we're looking at how God uses ordinary people, and He uses broken people in extraordinary ways in His kingdom. And so we're just looking at little Bible characters, oftentimes they get ignored, but yet when you look at their lives, you find really encouraging things that God does for them, which I hope is encouraging to you, because I'm sort of an ordinary person. I'm sort of a broken person, just like you. And it's good to know that God continues to use us in significant ways for his kingdom. Many of you know that I did not grow up in the Midwest. I'm not from this part of the country. I'm an East Coaster. I'm a Jersey boy. I grew up right outside of New York City. That's the way everybody talks out there. Uh, but I came to the Midwest. I tried to lose my accent. And I need to tell you that the East Coast is very different than the Midwest. In the East Coast, things are much older. Roads are much windier. They're much smaller. Things are just really dated. You have a sense of history there. And there's a lot of old churches with graveyards behind them. And that's good, though. Because you see these gravestones behind churches, and it's a reminder that... You know, one day you may be in the church, but someday you will be behind the church. None of us goes on forever. Each of us has an expiration date where our body will maybe be buried in the ground, but our spirits will be home with Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ returns. And when we die, someone somewhere will have that task of trying to figure out what to put on our gravestone if we're buried and we have one of those. Now, the common thing is most people just put a, a born date and they put a die date on it, and then in the middle they have a dash. But in previous generations, and for other people, they've thought about putting something different on the gravestone, different in the epitaph, some kind of little summary for their life. And I found there's some interesting ones out there. Now, this is a true gravestone. It's the gravestone of Elizabeth Rich. And this is what it reads. 38, 33, 01, 24, 17. Honey, you don't know what you did for me by always playing the lottery. <laughs> the numbers you picked came into play two days after you passed away. For this, a huge monument I do now erect, for now I get a yearly check. How I wish you were still alive, for now we are worth 8.5. <laughs> uh, 
Maybe another one that's sort of funny is Mel Blanc. Do you know Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig? And it just says on his gravestone, the born date, died date, then it says, that's all, folks. <laughs> another fun one is Martin Luther King. We know his uh, famous speech. And on his gravestone, it says, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. So sometimes you put on a gravestone, a little something that's a summary of someone's life or something memorable about their life. And I gave you some funny ones, but now I want to talk to you about one that was particularly impactful for me. This gravestone, or actually two, we'll start with two, then focus on one, is found behind Lower Providence Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. Go ahead and put that first slide up if you could. Two gravestones. You can see my wife in the middle with my kids. Obviously, this was taken a little bit long ago. Uh, those are the gravestones of the first Truxeses to come to America. David and Sophia Truxes came across on the boat six generations before me. David was a very energetic guy. Uh, he did a lot of neat things with his life, and he loved Jesus, and he began Lower Providence Presbyterian Church. In fact, that's why he is the first gravestone behind the church. Today, it's only about two or three feet from the back end of the church where his gravestone is. Now, let's go to the second one, which focuses in on his particular gravestone. And it says this. Here lies David Truxes, who was the president of the board of trustees of this church for 45 years. He died in 1897 at the age of 83, which means this guy was born in 1814. The legacy of his life was that he loved Jesus. He wanted to plant a church when he came to America, and then he led that church in following Jesus Christ for 45 years. Now, you could see earlier that when I took those pictures, I was a young guy. My children were very young, and I was just going into the ministry. I was sort of learning about all that kind of stuff. And here I am, and I walk up on the gravestone, and I realize I'm not the first Truxes to go into church ministry. In fact, I wanted to plant a church, and I was actually able to be part of the original planning of this campus. And I wanted to you know, be faithful all the way to the end. And here was David Truxes, six generations before me who did the same thing. And I thought, man, that is the kind of footsteps I want to follow in. I want to live well for Jesus and I want to be able to end well for Jesus. You know, someday, each one of us will be on the grave. Someday, Someone's going to have to decide what to put on your tombstone and my tombstone. What do you think they will say? Will they say, here lies someone who lived and finished well? When the Bible looks at our life, it describes the Christian life as a race. And when you run in a race, you give your best all the way through the race because you want to finish the race well. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, it's in your bulletin, it says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Run to win when it comes to living for Jesus. Give your absolute best for Jesus so you've finished well for Jesus. Or Hebrews 3.14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firmly to the end. I think that's such an encouragement because you and I know people who start out well for Jesus and then they drift off into left field and they don't finish well. The writer of Hebrews says, continue to press on with Jesus, hold on to Jesus all the way to the end, finish well for him. Since the Christian life is a race, we want to run well. Since the Christian life is a race, we want to finish well. That brings us to the character we're going to be studying this morning. His name is Caleb. And what is his unique defining quality that I want you to remember is that he lived a long life, he lived a fruitful life, and amazingly, he's one of the few people in the Bible that did not seem to lose his spiritual edge, even though he faced tremendous pressure. Started well, ran well, and finished well. Since that is our goal for Jesus, we're going to see what we can learn from Caleb about starting well, running well, and finishing all the way to the end well for Jesus Christ. So if you have your outlines out, we'll just start on point number one, which is meet Caleb. So let's give you some information about him. A little bit of background on Caleb. You may know the Israelites when God took them out of the promised land. It actually wasn't an awfully long time until he brought, excuse me, took them out of Egypt. He brought them to the promised land. And what they did at that point is they sent 12 spies into the promised land to check out the promised land before they went in to hopefully conquer it. Um, there was one spy from each of the tribes. Caleb was the spy chosen by the tribe of Judah to represent them in spying out the land. If you know the story, 10 of the 12 spies came back and they saw the land, they saw giants, they saw people, they saw cities, and they said, oh, we can't do it. We have to go back to Egypt. This whole thing's a failure. We're done. But there were two spies, Caleb and Joshua, who were different. They said, no, God has been faithful to us in the past. He has never let us down before. Yes, the promised land looks difficult to conquer, but God will enable us to be able to do that. Unfortunately, the Bible tells us the nation believed the majority report of the spies, not Caleb and Joshua's minority report. And as a result, the people of Israel were condemned to walk in circles in the wilderness for 40 years until every single last one of them died and a new generation went in. And here's the but. Every single last one of them died but for two people, Caleb and Joshua. In the entire Exodus generation, they are the only two that finished well. The only two that made it into the promised land. If you want to get a lesson on how to finish well, in difficult circumstances and difficult times, Caleb and Joshua are the guys you want to look to. 
Now, Joshua gets an entire book of the Bible named after him. So he's the major character. Caleb, he sort of falls between the cracks a little bit. He's the minor character. So I thought he'd be the one we relate with more. That's why we're studying him this morning. Interestingly, a little bit more background on Caleb, just so you know. Caleb was not originally born as a Jew. Uh, Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 and 14 tells us that Joshua was the, was the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite. And you're like, well, that means nothing to me. Kenizzites, Kazantite. Is that like, do you got a tissue after that? What does that mean? Well, the Kenizzites, you can read about them in the book of Genesis. I'll show you. Genesis 15, 18 through 19. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites. So Joshua's, or excuse me, Caleb's parents were some of the people who originally inhabited the promised land who were to be conquered. But Caleb's father, Jephunneh, and the Israelites came along. He's like, I'm with you guys. I'm joining you guys. I'm going to sign up with you guys. You, would, you and I would say, he repented and he became a Christian. Now, here is what is so amazing. Caleb's father repents, becomes a Jew. And within one generation, when the tribe of Judah has to choose what is their best and their brightest young man in the entire tribe to be a spy, to go spy out the, the promised land, they choose the son of Jephunneh, Caleb, as that man. And here is an interesting little side message. I don't know who you are. I don't know what kind of mess you have made of your life. I don't know how far from God you have run, but when you repent of your sins and you turn to Jesus, you will be shocked at what God can begin to do through your life in what is a very short order of time. Caleb's father, far from God. Caleb, the premier man of God in the tribe of Judah in one, one generation. That, my friends, is an incredible encouragement. That's a little bit of his background. Now we're going to look at his life and see what we can learn about how to finish well from him. We're going to break his life up into three parts. First, we're going to look at his younger years and what lessons we can learn there. Then we'll look at his middle years and finally at his senior years. Because, you know, those senior years, those are the, sometimes the most challenging years to make sure we finish well. So if you're in your outlines, we're on point two. What can we learn about finishing well from Caleb's early years? Uh, you think early years. We probably think, well, but as a teenager, what was Caleb like? I'm going to tell you, we don't really know. We don't know much about his teenage years. He shows up on the scene of the Bible at the age of about 40. And that's what we're going to call his early years. And we're going to read here some text that tells us about those years. It says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. 
And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Well, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed, next page, to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. The first thing they start with is about how wonderful the land is. Other parts of the Bible tell us that two of the men took a cluster of grapes and they put it on a pole and the two of them needed to carry that cluster of grapes back to the Israelites to show them the size of the fruit. I kept thinking about this when I was writing. You know in Fairway where they carry your groceries out? Imagine, you know, like, Two guys from Fairway carrying a pole out with this needing that much to carry the grapes, you know, to put it in your trunk. I mean, that's really good land, fertile land. But while they talk of the wonderful nature of the land, they are quick to focus on the problems in front of them. Fortified cities, lots of people, tall people, even these giant guys, Nephilim and Anakim and... I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail of exactly what the Nephilim and the Anakim are, but let's just say they're really big. They look like all professional basketball players. And we, we know David later fights one of the giants in the land called Goliath. So for them, they're feeling completely overwhelmed, and all they can see is the problems, and 10 of the spies are like, let's run out of here. Let's head back to slavery in Egypt. It was better. But I want you to pause and think about this. Don't they have an interesting case of amnesia? Haven't they often had plenty of problems before this once God took them out of Egypt? Hasn't God overcame every single one of the problems? Remember when they were in front of the Red Sea? The armies of Egypt were bearing down and they're like, oh, we're all going to die! And God's like... We got this under control. We'll stop them. We'll part the Red Sea, and then everyone's going to just drop. All the armies of Egypt are going to die. Just drowned. God handled it in a way they never expected. Oh, we're all going to dry because we don't have any food in the wilderness. God's like, I've got manna. We'll just drop that around six days a week and pick it up. Oh, we, we don't have anything to drink. I'll, I'll bring water in the driest place of all, the rock. Every single time they've had a problem, 
God has always overcame it. Now, this is interesting. Everyone looked at the problem in front of them. But only Caleb was able to see the faithfulness of the God who was with them. Isn't that true? This is what we read, Numbers 13.30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Here's the first point about finishing well. Finishing well comes from remembering the faithfulness of the God who loves us, not just the size of the problems in front of us. We have to remember that. All of us will face times in life where the bottom will drop out of our world and we will see no solution to get to the other side. Maybe it's the children that we love heading in a direction we don't want them to go. Maybe it's our job not providing enough income so we can figure out how to make ends meet. Maybe it's a spouse that breaks our heart. Maybe it's a family member that is diagnosed with a serious disease uh, like cancer. And immediately our eyes will want to focus on the monstrous size of the problem in front of us. But we have to train our vision Maybe we start there, but we have to train our vision to go look at the faithfulness of the God who has always been with us. And if he's not let us down in the past, he will not let us down now. Now we know that God had promised to bring the Israelites to the promised land. I will get you there. And every time they faced an obstacle that seemed impossible to overcome, God overcame that obstacle. So the giants in the land, the people of the land, was just the next obstacle for God to overcome. But you see, here's where it gets so hard. Has God been faithful to you in the past? Has he always carried you through? But what happens the first thing when a big problem comes into our world? We want to focus on the size of the problem not the faithfulness of our great God. To finish well in our younger years, we must train our eyes to focus on God's faithfulness, not just the difficulties. Now, let's look a little bit more at Caleb and how he handled this. Numbers 14. And Joshua said to... And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Oh, I love the way Caleb says this. They are bred to us. Guys, we are going to eat them up. God is not with them. God is with us. He's been faithful to us. He will not let us down. Now, I don't know what big, huge, audacious problem you are facing this morning. It may be a financial challenge. 
It may be a lawsuit. It may be a child. It may be something in your family. It may be a sickness. But take your eyes this morning off of that problem and fix them on the faithfulness of your God. That is the only way to remain faithful to the end. Remember the, the people who focused on the size of the problem? They all died in the wilderness. Only Caleb and Joshua, who focuses on God's faithfulness, made it all the way through to the promised land. I like the way this is sort of summarized also in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. No matter what you face, God is greater than that problem. The next thing we can learn about Caleb from his younger years and finishing well is this. Finishing well comes from thinking for yourself and not following the crowd. Essentially, this means learning in your younger years not to give in to peer pressure. Caleb faced a lot of peer pressure to give in to the rest of the ten spies, to join with them and say the land was unconquerable and there was no hope and they should turn around and go back. You say, Caleb was really pressured into just going along with them? Oh, yes, he was. Put your finger in the text. Look what it says here. Numbers 14, 9 through 10. Caleb is speaking here. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. He's given his little speech here. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then it reads, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. What? Caleb says we can do it. Let's kill him. <laughs> wow. Crazy peer pressure to go along with the crowd. Folks, not much has changed. Today, especially if you're a young person, you are under incredible pressure to just fit in with the culture around us, to fit in with the society around us, to go along with what everybody else believes, with the way everybody else acts. And you know, if you go along with the way everybody else believes and the way everybody else acts, like the rest of the Exodus generation, you will not end up finishing well. You have to learn to think for yourself and stay faithful to Jesus. That's the only way to finish well. When I was young, there was a, a popular set of posters out there. Go ahead and put the fishy one up there. Maybe some of you guys who are older remember this. Anybody older remember posters like this? Yeah, okay. Now you're, we're all dating ourselves by putting our hands up? Okay, good. But the idea is fish, they always swim in schools. They all act just like one another. You need to be the fish that's willing to swim against the stream. To think for yourself, to do what is right, and to honor God, not just what everybody else is doing. Young adults, let me just talk to you about the pressure you're under. I never thought when I was growing up that young adults would be under pressure to like think that gender is fluid. And if you don't agree with that, you can be mocked at school, you can be picked on in school. The idea that sex should not be saved, the idea that um, the issues of wokeness and critical race theory, that kind of stuff is all pushed into you. 
And if you don't buy into that, you don't agree with that, you will probably end up suffering for that. Caleb suffered. But that was the key to finishing well. Being able to say what he knows is right and that God is faithful and faithful to him and not just going along with the crowd. There's a thought that hit me when I was writing this section. In high school, I was so concerned to like please my friend group. You guys remember your high school friend group that you wanted to please? Remember like talking with my dad, like, I have to wear my hair this way, dad, because all the cool people have hair like this. My dad just you know, shaking his head. And my, my wife, she says, oh, I have to wear these particular super expensive pair of jeans because all the cool girls have the guest jeans or whatever brand it was back then. But the reality is, those people I was so concerned to please, I haven't seen them in over 30 years. I haven't even thought about them in 30 years. Why was I so concerned to please the crowd? But I'll tell you, Jesus was with me back then. Jesus is with me right now. Jesus is here today, and he loves you, and he knows you, and he's with you. And one day we will stand before Jesus. Even as Christians, we'll be judged by Jesus, not for condemnation. We'll be judged by Jesus for our rewards. Man, he's the one we want to please, right? Not just going along with the crowd. If you have to stand against the crowd, if you have to suffer for standing against the crowd, it's well worth it. Because that crowd, in five years, in 10 years, they'll be gone and you won't even remember their names. But Jesus will still be there. So those are the two lessons we learned uh, about finishing well from Caleb in his younger years. Number one, keep your eyes on the faithfulness of the God in front of you, not just the size of the problems. Number two, make sure that you can stand on your own and don't just give in to peer pressure. Now let's move to his middle years. Now, we know that as a result of believing the 10 unbelieving spies, the Israelite generation had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years of walking in circles until they all died. We read wilderness and we're thinking, must have been pretty nice. And no, it wasn't. The wilderness is a desert. How would you like to live the rest of your life walking in circles? That sounds pretty bad. By the way, the people's attitudes, we have seen this, the Exodus generation, have, they have a really bad attitude. They love to complain, they love to whine, they love to grumble. And here's the thing we need to learn. Finishing well means not absorbing the bad attitudes of the people around us. The Bible doesn't tell us much what, about what happened to Caleb in the 40 years of wandering in the desert, but we do get an idea of what it was like by looking at Moses, because the Old Testament then focuses on what these people were like for Moses during that time of wandering. For instance, Numbers, I think it's 16, we read about Korah's rebellion, where 250 of the leaders of the people chose to rebel against Moses, and it really stressed Moses out. You can read about this in Numbers 16. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. What did I do wrong? Why are they getting so angry and mad at me and rebelling against me? 
And God took care of it. He had one of those massive sinkholes open up, swallowed all those guys alive. And you would think that that would quiet people down when God has a massive sinkhole open up and swallow all the opponents. But no, it doesn't happen that way. The very next day, look what the people are like. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And Moses was like, I don't make sinkholes. Like God did that. I didn't do that. Why are you blaming me all over again? In fact, I'd be a little nervous about complaining a second time, you know? And God took care of this again. Now he had a plague with 14,700 died. And then we read this. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Essentially, we've run out of Diet Coke. This is a crisis. How can we survive? I wish we had died in the sinkhole with the rest of them. You're like, these are the kind of guys that on a hot day, you give them a glass of cold water and they complain it's too wet. I mean, there's just no pleasing them. Always seem to have a problem. And what we see at this point, this is what God does about this little water problem. Now take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Once again, God, in spite of incredible opposition and no, seemingly no way to get through, provides for them miraculously. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, notice the attitude here. Here now, you rebels. Oh, you think it's getting under his skin at this point? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. A little anger management issue going on here. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. The people were incredibly irritable. They were incredibly difficult. They were constantly grumbling. They were constantly whining. And it really got under Moses' skin to the point that he actually sinned and it kept him out of the promised land. It doesn't say this, but I assume that the people were not just whining, grumbling, and irritable only towards Moses and Aaron, but I'm sure they were also whining and grumbling towards Caleb as well. Why? They grind about everything and everyone. Why wouldn't he be included? But somehow, Caleb did not absorb that attitude and let it lead him into sin. And we want, how did that happen? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but I will tell you just from personal experience. When I am around people that are grumbling and whining and irritable, it's really easy to pick that up. Anybody else find that? You start grumbling, you start whining, it's infectious. 
And what I need to do is I, when I realize that's happening, I have to get really, make sure I'm really faithful in my time in God's word. I have to make sure I'm faithful in prayer. And when I'm in the word, I'm in prayer, all of a sudden I find the Lord convicting me very strongly about the attitudes that I have absorbed from the people around me and rebuking me. Now, I would just recommend that to you. You know, if you have those situations, stay faithful in the Lord. Don't absorb the bad attitude around you or you end up like Moses and not finishing well instead of Caleb who was able to not absorb it and be faithful to the end. Another little observation. Finishing well in the middle years means drawing closer to God in times of suffering. And we often forget this. Those 40 years of walking in circles. Yes, God is providing manna. Yes, God is providing water out of the rock. Yes, God is making sure their sandals don't wear out. But the Bible describes those 40 years as incredibly difficult times of long-term suffering for the people. Look what it says. Numbers 14.33 And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and you shall suffer for your Faithlessness, faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Folks, in the middle of life, sometimes difficulty and suffering will come into our world. And it's not the kind of difficulty and suffering that's gone in a week. Sometimes it comes into our world and it lasts for a long, long time. Some of you know my wife came down in our middle years with an autoimmune disease. And for a period of time, we were concerned when we had three little kids that she wasn't going to live. And God was very gracious and has put it into remission and kept it in remission. But those were like long time periods of suffering. God, how will this end? But you know, in times of suffering, there's two things that can happen. Suffering either draws people away from Christ and they end up in bitterness or it's an incentive to dig deeper into Jesus and draw closer to Christ and know him better. The one thing you cannot do in times of suffering is stay the same. You have to make a choice what you will do with your pain. Run from him or draw closer to him. And to that degree, that suffering can draw us so much closer to the Lord and get us out of spiritual stagnation, to that degree, suffering can be a good thing even if it's a long-term and difficult time. Now, in your outlines, I have a verse about Job, how Job draw closer to the Lord in the difficult times that he faced. But rather than talk about Job and how his suffering drew him closer to the Lord, I want to give you a more modern example of a Job story. Are any of you familiar with Dwayne and Janet Willis? The name doesn't seem to ring a bell, but I'll tell you their story. Uh, at the time when this happened, they had nine kids. Um, three of the kids were older. They had six younger kids, Dwayne and, J and Janet, got in their minivan. Uh, they were driving to Watertown, Wisconsin. They had six of their little kids in the minivan, and uh, they were following a truck, and a truck dropped a piece of metal, and it came off. It went under their minivan. The metal flipped up, pierced their gas tank, shooting right into the interior of the minivan, and it lit on fire, and the entire interior of the minivan burst into flames. Uh, 
Dwayne and Janet were barely able, as the flames were around them, to get the minivan over to the side of the road. They turned around, and all six of their children were incinerating behind them. And there was no way that they could get back into that flaming vehicle to save them. Now, that's suffering that won't go away for a long time. It's suffering they could choose to either respond with hatred to God or they could draw closer to God and seek Him deeper and pour out their pain to Him. Eleven days after that happened, uh, Dwayne Willis gave a, a press conference. I want to show you a section of that press conference on the television screens. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Janet and I want to praise and thank God. First, for six precious children, four rascally boys, a sweet girl so much like her mother, and a little baby just beginning to smile and grow. We know that the fullness of life is not measured in days and years. Secondly, I thank God for a sweet, loving, and submissive wife. And thirdly, I thank God for his preparation for this trial. On February 5th, 1975, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And through his word, his testings, and our failings, the testimony and fellowship of others, God taught us his love, his grace, and his goodness. The five youngest children died instantly. No sound was heard by Janet or myself as we struggled to get out of the van. Benny courageously made it out, and he was conscious at the accident scene. There are so many people to thank. All the rescue workers, ambulance crews, flight for life, particularly off-duty police officer Shea, the first to reach us. An unknown man took his shirt off his back in order to soak Benny's wounds. And another beat out the burning clothes on Janet's back. And we want to thank the nurses that have become very precious to us for their care and comfort. And we want to thank the doctors, Dr. Youssef, Dr. Wong, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Larson. We want to thank the people of Milwaukee and the people of our beloved city of Chicago for their sympathy and their encouragement. We want to thank the people who visited us and listened as we shared about our little ones. We want to thank the generous people all over this nation. As far away as Hawaii, we send cards and flowers and gifts. We also want to thank our brothers and sisters at Parkwood Baptist Church and the hundreds of churches who have lifted us up in prayer before the Lord. And lastly, we thank our families who were special, such a special blessing. Our daughter, Amy, and her husband, Alan. Our son, Toby, and his wife, Brenda. And our son, Dan, and his wife, Kim. Lastly, I want to thank the media for their kind and compassionate reporting of our great loss. Thank you.
in the middle of life, sometimes there will come times of suffering, great suffering. It's suffering that can either pull you away or it'll draw you close. And I encourage you with Dwayne and Janet Willis's story, as well as Caleb's. Let's move to the fourth and final point. What can we learn about finishing well from Caleb's senior years? The next time he pops up in Scripture, he's 85 years old. The Exodus generation is dead, except for himself and Joshua. Joshua, at that point, had spent five years uh, conquering the Promised Land. Obviously, not all the Promised Land was conquered, but much of it was conquered. And Joshua was dividing up the Promised Land. And here, Caleb pops up once again. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have, here it is again, you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day, 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hell country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. First thing we learn is this consistent phrase: finishing well comes from following the Lord whole. Heartedly. You notice that phrase happened three times to describe Caleb in that passage. But by the way, if you look at Caleb and other passages of Scripture, that phrase is consistently associated with him. Numbers 14 says this, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, has followed me fully. I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36 except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. And by the way, there's a number of additional passages with that same phrase in it about Caleb. To finish well, we want to wholeheartedly follow the Lord. Now, what does it mean to wholeheartedly follow the Lord? It seems simply this. 
not to be half-hearted in our walk with Christ. We want Jesus to be fully committed to us, don't we? He saves us in full. He saves us completely. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never let us down. All of our sins He has taken away from us. The sins of our past, our present, and even our future. That's fully committed to us. But many of us say, well, I'd only like to be partially committed to Him. That's not the way to finish well. The majority of the Exodus, Exodus generation was partially committed to following the Lord. Caleb was wholly committed to following the Lord. Now, you, why are we the kind of people that say, I'd be content to only be partially committed to Jesus, not fully committed? I'll tell you what goes through so many people's minds. You know, if I was fully committed to Jesus with all my heart and all my soul, and I followed him all the time, man, life would be terrible. Because the world has all the stuff that's fun. The world has all the stuff that's good. The world has all the stuff that's joy. But Jesus, he's my fire insurance, but he's not my fun. That's backwards, folks. The Bible tells us this. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The more closely we draw to Jesus, the more fully we follow him with our life, the more joy and happiness we will experience. Now, I didn't say that would be easy. Sometimes you have to stand against the crowd. Sometimes you may suffer. But joy and happiness comes from following Jesus with all of our hearts. The world always does the bait and switch. It says, this is what looks good, but then once you bite the apple, it, it's always bitter, isn't it? It always takes life rather than gives life. Finish well by fully following the Lord. The second thing I'd like to point out is this. Finishing well comes from staying involved in the mission all the way to the end. Caleb was 85 years old. Most people at 85 are checked out. They're on the mission when they're young. They're on the mission when they're middle. But when they're, when they're older, it's over. That's not Caleb. He says, I may be 85, but I want the area of Hebron, the place that had the giants in it, the place that, had, that was so difficult to conquer. It doesn't matter how old I am. If God is committed to giving us the promised land, even though I'm the oldest man in the entire nation, I will take the toughest part of the promised land and God will enable me to conquer it. And that's exactly what happened. He stayed on the mission all the way until God brought him home. That's how he finished well. Folks, it's one of the things I love about Crosswinds is at least on the Spirit Lake campus, there's a lot of people who have gotten closer to those retirement years. And the world says retirement years is now where you just check out and you live for yourself. Stay on the mission all the way until your end. Caleb's finest hour, I think, is his last hour when the oldest guy in the nation conquers the toughest part of the promised land to prove to everyone else that God is still faithful. 
It doesn't matter how big the giants are. It doesn't matter how scary the cities are. If God is with you, he will be faithful to you all the way until the end. And think what kind of a model he left for all the younger people in that nation as they went to conquer the rest of the promised land. If Caleb can do it, we can do it as well. Now, I don't know when it will be, but for each one of us, there'll come a time when we close our eyes one last and final time. At that time, someone's going to have to decide what to put on our tombstone. Well, they'll have a born date. They'll have a died date. Maybe they'll have a dash. But maybe, just maybe they'll decide to have some kind of a little summary statement about our life. I'll tell you what I want somebody to be able to say about me, and I want somebody to be able to say about you. Here lies a man who lived and finished well because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord. May that be the legacy that we leave behind, not just from our life, but for generations that follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that we would be a church filled with people who live and finish well. In our younger years, keeping our eyes on the faithfulness of our God, not the size of our problems. Men and women who are courageously willing to stand against the peer pressure of the world around us. Men and women who, when we face those times of long-term and difficult suffering, we draw closer to you rather than follow away from you. And men and women who, in their senior years, don't just turn around and live for themselves, but stay on the mission for you, faithful all the way to the end, leaving a wonderful example of faithfulness and trust in God for the generations that follow. May it always be able to be said about us on our tombstone, here lies a man or a woman who wholeheartedly followed Jesus and finished well. That is our prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.